Today's show brought to you by our friends at Woodbine. It's Queen's Plate Week. For loads of information about the Queen's Plate, which takes place on Sunday, August 21st, with the first post of 1 p.m., Woodbine has created a cool little microsite. Go to woodbine.com slash queensplate for loads of information. The plate itself scheduled for 5.47 p.m. We're going to have a draw on Wednesday and lots of coverage all week long, starting off with this very show. Fun little chat with Jim Lawson. I was able to have uh, keep it here for lots of information about the Queen's Plate in the moneypodcast.com. More info there. And then, of course, as I mentioned, woodbine.com slash queensplate. Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players Podcast. This is our show for Tuesday, August 16th. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker. Once again, fun show, three guests, and uh, really no reason to dilly-dally. I think we're going to dive into it right now on the show, though you can expect to hear a little bit of an update of what's going on in California racing from Jay Privman. Very excited to welcome Jim Lawson back to the In The Money Airwaves to talk a little Queen's Plate, and we'll wrap things up with the man I refer to as the usual co-host of the program, Jonathan Kinchin. We'll get to the first guest right after this. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Monmouth Park. Live racing now on Friday through Monday, first post 12.15. So keep in mind for weekends and Labor Day Monday, and then 2 p.m. on Fridays and August Mondays. On Mondays, you can bet the new Monday, Mid-Atlantic pick four, two from Monmouth, two from Colonial, four races in under 90 minutes, 50-cent base, 15% takeout, and extra shows being provided. They'll usually drop Sunday night, where we'll have uh, typically Jessica Paquette from Colonial and Nick Tamaro uh, and myself talking through this new Monday, Mid-Atlantic pick four. Check it out. You got to play to win. Next up on the show, it isn't every day we get to welcome a Hall of Famer to the airwaves. Always enjoy our visits with this next guest, whether we're talking about industry matters or the specifics of racing around the country. And uh, we'll we'll be focusing on both of those concerns in the course of the next few minutes. I'm speaking about from Daily Racing Forum, Jay Privman. Jay, how are things? Good, Pete. Good to be with you again. So I bothered you pre-meet because we were going to have you talk two-year-olds with us. And it turned out it sounded to me like you were more or less engaged in the trip of a lifetime heading over to uh, the open. How was that trip? It, it was great. I, 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 I didn't quite follow in your footsteps through all of Scotland like you did, but uh, had a wonderful trip over there. Uh, just really enjoyed it. It was kind of a bucket list opportunity, and that caused me to meet the miss opening day of the Del Mar meet. And that was why Brad did the two-year-old story this year. He had done it last year when I was ill, but uh, I was going to do it this year. And then when this thing came up, he was gracious enough to step in and, and do it. An able pinch hitter, if ever there Absolutely. was. M- Manny Moda, we'll call him. <laughs> He's done uh, in that context. What have you thought about the two-year-old racing so far at Del Mar? We might as well start there. You've been impressed by much of what you've seen? Yeah, especially this past weekend. We had a really fast two-year-old winner uh, named Cave Rock. He was a debuting Baffert by Arrogate, who Baffert trained. And it's been kind of funny. There have been a couple of Arrogates that have won this meet. You might remember 
Del Mar was kind of kryptonite for Arrogate when he was running. Uh, he was for sure. He, he was terrible in like the Pacific Classic and the Breeders' Cup, but uh, his offspring have have thrived here certainly this summer. And Cave Rock, the Baffert who won on Saturday first time out, he got a one hundred one buyer speed figure, which equals the fastest number recorded by a two year old this year. Uh, and there have been several others who have impressed. Uh, the, the one of the most precocious has been having a meltdown who won the best pal on Sunday. Uh, he's also a, a Baffert. And I think the most impressive Philly, just in terms of the way the horse looked, just watching the race, not from a speed figure standpoint was Justique, the daughter of justify that John Sheriff's trains. And you know, when John Sheriff's doesn't win first time out very often. So uh, the, the fact that she won, uh, for him first time out, I think bodes well for her future, even though the, the speed figure that she got was was pretty moderate. I would expect her to move forward from that as her career progresses. Definitely some names to keep in mind and always interesting to see a two-year-old who can start off with a triple-digit figure, especially at this time of year. The Cave Rock you mentioned by Arrogate out of a Bellamy Road Dam has had some winning siblings. They've been sprintier. Um I mean, it's impossible to say I know, but what kind of vibes are you getting around Cave Rock about how far you think he eventually might want to go? Yeah, it's, you know, it's just so hard to say at this stage, but certainly being by Arrogate, and as you mentioned, even though the, the dam has not really produced classic distance kind of horses, you know, Bellamy Road was a Wood Memorial winner. So you'd think two turns would certainly be within the, the grasp of a horse like cave rock uh but you know they're, they're running at such short distances at this point compared to what we're going to want to see them do this fall and certainly next spring that it's just it's hard to extrapolate but i certainly like him more as a stretch out horse than for instance having a meltdown who looks to me like an early two-year-old who, who's going to end up being a sprinter for for the um older part of his career newgate was another one that was pretty impressive the into mischief out of a dam called Majestic Presence by Majestic Warrior, solid on the clock and looked like one with scope for improvement. How impressed were you by him? I liked him, and you know he's he's one of the many horses that the partnership of SF Racing and Starlight at all uh, buy every year, uh, and they've got another strong group. And he was certainly one of the more forward ones of that group, and won nicely first time out uh, the second weekend of the meet and. He's come back and had a couple of works since then, including this morning. He had the fastest five eighths of the morning, uh, going fifty nine and two. Excuse me, fifty nine and one fifth, fifty nine point twenty seconds. And I would expect him to be pointed towards the Del Mar Futurity, which will be on closing day this year, which it's September eleventh, with the meet having been extended a week past Labor Day. I'm half thinking about trying to get out there. I just have to make sure that there aren't going to be divorce papers waiting for me <laughs> when I come back <laughs> after this, you know, adventure this summer and earlier earlier this summer and being away at Saratoga the whole time. What will it be for Baffert if he were to win the Futurity? His 87th win in the race? Is it something like that? Pretty much. Uh, he's obviously, I mean, that's his bread and butter. I mean, he they he likes to buy young horses and 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 do well with the two-year-olds with the hope of them being classic type runners the next spring. And that's continued even through what's gone on with him the, the last year and a half or so. He still has a very, very deep group of two-year-olds uh, this year. And I think they're, you're going to continue to make noise uh, 
throughout the rest of this year. And it seems like as far as the Derby goes, they now have their boilerplate for how they'll handle um, if th- these owners who've chosen to stick by him, they have the, a path to get the horses so they can potentially still still run in the Derby. It f- feels like there's not, from an owner point of view, not much uh, not much downside at all to keeping him with the guy who's you know went one more Grade One two year old races in recent years than anybody else I could name. And it sounds like he's got some interesting runners that haven't uh, made it to the track in the afternoon yet. One of which you mentioned off air that you sounded intrigued by. Yeah. And that that horse's name is Hijazi. It's spelled H-E-J-A-Z-I. Um, he made headlines earlier this year because he was the highest priced sale horse at the uh, uh, the Timonium sale, uh, which is held in May uh, in Maryland. He sold for three and a half million dollars as a two year old in training. He's by Bernardini's out of a Medallia d'Oro mare and. He's made terrific progress, uh, and I, I think he'll, he'll certainly make the meet at Del Mar. I would expect to see him debut within the next week or two based on the progress he's made uh, with his workouts. That's interesting. With that pedigree, you don't expect them to be working whatever kind of time they might, must have worked at the at the Timonium sale to to garner that kind of price. So it just it's logical. Sometimes when I see them from the two year old in training sale, you might have wanted wanted them to come out by now. But with that pedigree, it just stands to reason that this is a horse who probably needs to grow into the body a little bit. And I don't know, it feels like one that might debut at seven and, and hit the ground running. Do you know what, what distance they're planning on for Hijazi? I, I would think they would want a longer sprint. We had our first six and a half race uh, of the year on dirt. Uh, obviously, they've, they've been running two-turn mile grass races, but you know, for dirt racing, there's been the six and a half that Cave Rock won last uh, Saturday was the first at, at, as far as uh, that distance, and I would think they would want at least six for Hijazi, if not six and a half or seven. One thing I want to talk to you about that has been a pleasant surprise to me, the overall quality of racing at Del Mar this year. This was uh, We saw some great field sizes opening weekend, and we're racing people. We get cynical. You think, oh, well, what's it going to look like in three weeks? Well, so far throughout the meet, field size has been a, a real positive. It feels like the ship and win plan has been working well, but there's got to be more to it well, from your um view on the ground there at Del Mar, what are the biggest factors in the, the successful uh, gambling contest they've been holding? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the field size has been terrific. And and usually the mid part of the meet, there really is a dip in terms of field size. And there's been a teeny bit of a dip, but not as alarming as we've seen in previous years. And I just give full credit to the racing office here. I think both Tom Robbins and David Jerkins have their finger on the pulse of what their inventory is. And They've written a, a book that is reflective of, of what they have available to them because invariably every day, either the book goes as is or maybe there's one race in the book that doesn't go and they've got to use one sub race or one extra. And that's an unusual situation, not just in Southern California, but in most jurisdictions. And I just think they've, they've really zeroed in on what they've got. And the other thing, Pete, that I think is really a credit to them and and it's kind of been lost in all the understandable feel good about the field sizes. Don't forget 
Delmar's running one more day a week than usual on this circuit year round now. Santa Anita runs three days a week and Delmar's pulling this off running four days a week. Now, granted, that's not the five or six days of, of, of years past, but still, when you're on a circuit that is largely three days a week, you'd think there'd be some dilution going out to four days a week, but there hasn't been. In fact, it's been even better. So I think that really is illustrative of just how well uh, these guys are doing in terms of knowing what's available and putting on cards that reflect that. Is that the particular lesson you'd say, the knowing what's available, knowing what horses are on the ground, what races you're going to get to go and, and going with the flow as opposed to trying to maybe make the, 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 the program of races something that it's incapable of being? I'm just curious what lessons could maybe be learned from looking at the success of this meet that can help California racing going forward. Yeah, I, I think if you try and put up too many substitute races or extra races and there's just so many permutations of similar types of races, maybe it's slightly different distance or a slightly different claiming level by only maybe a $5,000 difference. You're going to have people who are just trying to cherry pick, but if you can funnel them all into the same race and say, look, if you don't run in this race, your horse is going to sit in the barn for three more weeks until that race comes back. This is one of the rare, the rare places where the racing office is ruling what's going on as opposed to the, the horseman being able to cherry pick. And I think if you have a, a strong book that's what happens, and it's better for everybody because trainers can train into the race that they know is going to go instead of wondering, boy, is this race going to go or are they going to use five extras today? So you can train into a race with pretty much certitude that that race is going to go on the day that you're expecting it to go. So, And you get field size that obviously the, the players are, are happy with. So it's, it's just been just a really good situation all around. We've been talking in the last part of this interview about the quantity of racing at Del Mar. How would you evaluate the quality of racing so far? That's also been really good. Uh, there's there's something for everybody in terms of quality, but I think by and large, uh, the field sizes for the better quality races have been quite good. For instance, the Best Pal had double-digit field size for a two-year-old race in mid-August, which is unusual for this circuit. Uh, so that is just one example of it. Stake, there's, we've talked about this in other contexts. You know, not all over the country, there's problems with field size for stakes races, just because there's too many stakes races for the same, ki same kinds of horses. But, and that's happened with Del Mar in some instances too, where there's been six or seven horses in some of the, the races. But overall, the depth of quality at the allowance ranks and the maiden ranks has been really, really strong. And I, one thing that I was pleasantly surprised by was how deep the two-year-old roster was out here this year. I, I just thought it wasn't going to be quite as strong as it's been in the past for various reasons. And it's been anything but that. Uh, I, I People from out here were buying horses at sales and bringing them here, or there's obviously groups of owners who might not even be based out here, but want to race out here. And that's all been a really encouraging sign for California racing. To, to talk about that larger problem for a second of the stakes field size in a sport that is famously doesn't have any kind of central authority to address issues like this, what is the path, especially in this day and age with the full shortage clearly being real, what is the path to get a more robust 
graded stakes program nationally? Does it fall on the, the graded stakes committee to have to make some tougher decisions? Do individual jurisdictions need to step up and, and change their programs around? What would you say as an informed observer is the path to addressing this issue? I, I think both of those things need to happen. I, but I do think it starts with the graded stakes committee. There's just too many races. And I, I kind of flippantly but pointedly said that about a couple of months ago on Twitter, if you're wondering why field size is so small, just understand that this sport is not horse racing. It, it's, it's horse breeding. Uh, and that's kind of kidding on the square because you're, the reason there's so many stakes races is from a black type standpoint, you're trying to reward people for running in stakes races. But there's a point of diminishing returns, and I think we've reached it, where we've had full crops that have gone down quite significantly over the past 10 years, but the number of graded stakes races has not been reduced in kind. And it's just simple math at that point uh, from a supply and demand standpoint. If you have less horses running in a similar number of races, well, the, those numbers of races are going to have less horses competing in them. The the math is uh, self evident as far as that goes. We'll see. It, I mean, graded stakes committee seems like maybe the best bet in a sense, uh, but of course, there's all kinds of entrenched political interests there that I'm sure are difficult to uh, persuade. That we need to put a little bit more of an emphasis on the horse racing part of things as opposed to the horse breeding. Is it realistic? Do you think at all to 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 get that changed in the next several years? Um, <laughs> having done this as long as I have, my honest answer would be probably not. Uh, but I remain ever hopeful. <laughs> I like the realistic optimism in that, in that, uh, in that statement. Let's get back to talking about some of the racing out there at, at Del Mar, a funner topic than, uh, than the full shortage and the plethora of graded stakes racing. Let's talk about some of your highlights so far, things that you've seen that that impressed you, whether from a, a, a point of view of, of a horse you might be interested to follow going further or just a great sporting moment. What, what would have been the best bits of Del Mar? Well, one of the interesting things, you know, there's been really a kind of a wholesale turnover of the jockey colony out here uh, with people coming and going. And it's been kind of fun to see some of the new riders that have come in and done well, like Hector Berrios or Ryan Curatolo, for instance. You know, Juan Hernandez is the leading rider out here and, and Rispoli who left briefly and then realized maybe I shouldn't leave if Pratt's leaving is back here and is, and is doing well again. Uh, so that's been kind of a fun thing to just sort of watch. But in terms of racing, you know, the biggest race of the season is still to come and Flightline is going to be running in the Pacific Classic, which is on September the 3rd. And I really think it's shaping up as, a, as an intriguing race, Pete, because Obviously, it'll be the first time Flightline has gone two turns. It'll be the first time he'll go out to a mile and a quarter. And he's going to be running against Country Grammar, who did get beat in the San Diego a few weeks ago against Royal Ship. But that was at a mile and a 16th, which is just too short for Country Grammar to show his best. A mile and a quarter, though, uh, conveniently the, the distance of the race that he won in Dubai in the World Cup is right up his alley. And that's going to make it a, a, a really tough test, I think, for Flightline. As good as I think Flightline is, and he will be the deserved and understandable favorite in that race, it's going to be an intriguing matchup to see if he can 
go out to a mile and a quarter against a, a proven mile and a quarter specialist. It's a great point. Is it shaping up to be a little bit of a match on paper that race, or, or do you think there's others who are going to be going? No, with it'll a be a deeper field. I mean, Royal Ship should be in there. I would think you'd see Express Train in in there after he passed on the San Diego. Uh, I would imagine there'd be some others like Stiletto Boy who would who would come back in there. And I mean, I I don't know if somebody would ship in for this race, but you know, it's a million dollars, and and you don't have to run against. Uh, it's kind of pick your poison. You run against Flightline, or do you, you know, do you run against Life Is Good? Where, where do you want to go? It's yeah, definitely not an easy, uh, not an easy decision. With that idea, especially that the mile and a quarter could prove the kryptonite to to Flightline, who's just been so awesome in everything he's done. This is a horse who, as we've said many times on the network, runs by appointment only, seemingly wrapped in, in cotton wool in between. What have been the vibes about how he's training and how he's looking? Obviously, we'll have more data points as we get closer to the race. But to, to, to this point, I would assume he's been a bit of a talking horse in the, anytime you're out there in the morning. Everybody's saying, oh, my God, look, there's Flightline. What, what, what are the vibes been? Yeah, he's been appointment viewing for me every Saturday. He works every Saturday at 630, and I'm there for every one of those works. And he is continuing to impress his drill this past Saturday was officially six furlongs from beginning from the five furlong pole. So the, the timing of the work was completed when he got to the seven ace pole, a furlong past the wire, but his gallop out was another quarter mile. And it re- was really kind of a full lap around the track before he started to, to ease up uh, under Juan Leva. And the thing that's so deceptive about him is that he just looks like he's going along easily. And then you see what the time is and you're like, oh my God. Uh, so there's, there's certainly been no indication from the way he's trained here that there's going to be any drop off in the quality of his performances. It's just going to be a matter of will the mile and a quarter get him in the Pacific Classic, but you can't fault the way he's trained. He's a, he's a pretty special horse. We're going to have tons of coverage, of course, about all these big stakes races coming up at uh, Del Mar, these big grade ones at the end of the meet. Is there anything besides the ones we've talked about so far that you're p- particularly looking forward to, either in terms of a race or a hu- following a human achievement, anything along those lines? Uh, I, the training standpoint has been interesting. There have been, as I was mentioning a moment ago, just seeing some of the new jockeys that have come in. There have been some trainers who have had really strong meetings that you know you might not have thought they'd you thought they might do well, but not as well as they have. George Papa Padromo being one of them. Uh, also, Andy Mathis, who's based most of the year in Northern California, but brought a decent-sized number of horses down to Del Mar and has had a really good strike rate here. So th- those kinds of things are always fun to to see as to who ends up stepping up and having a, a big meet where just everything sort of falls into place for them. It has been interesting to follow the human connections, a lot of new characters out there, and good to see a lot of them having success. While I have you, I did want to talk about and and potentially even button up an issue that I know you and I were both uh, pretty upset about uh, that I think a lot of well-meaning people like didn't fully understand what the issue was. I thought rather than try to just let it play out on Twitter, it might be fun, uh, well, I don't know about fun, but informative to have a little bit of a conversation about what happened and the resolution of the CHRB uh, looking to license reporters issue that bubbled up a couple of weeks ago. For those who haven't been following the story, how would you explain what happened? (laughs) Um, It's kind of inexplicable because it was 
unnecessary and patently illegal based on the CHRB's own rules. But basically what happened was completely out of the blue and without bothering to even ask any media members like, hey, you know, we think we might have an issue that we need to deal with. What's a good solution to this? Just the CHRB put out an edict last Monday, just a, a week ago now, saying that media members would need a license to go on the backside. Uh, and just for those who, who don't know, what, what's happened prior to that and what will now continue after the, the pushback, at Del Mar, for instance, I have a credential from Del Mar. It has my photo on it. It has my name on it. And it has my affiliation of Daily Racing Forum. And when I need to go to the stable area, there's about four entry points to the stable area at various points around the track. They're all staffed by a security guard. And for me to get back there, I need to go past that security guard and show my identification. So there's there's knowledge as to who's back there. It's not as though people can just go back there willy-nilly. So that's the first sort of macro point I want to make about this. The thing that was so objectionable about the CHRB's edict on its face is that they were basically asking reporters to be licensed by an organization that they cover and be subject to the penalties of that organization. And you know, if you violated some rules that had not been specified. So it was completely, it was poorly thought out. It's unprecedented. I mean, even people who cover the White House or, or the Supreme Court or far more important things than the stable area at Del Mar aren't <laughs> licensed by the organization that they're covering and subject to disciplinary action from that organization. It was just, it was kind of an absurd notion. But the other thing about it, Pete, that really ticked me off is that the, ra the, the racing board, when I asked, well, what is this based on? They sent me a line from a rule that said anybody who goes to the stable area needs to be licensed. But it was a deceitful way of presenting that information as a justification because if you that was only the, the first line of a, of a very long rule, which then goes on to specify who in the backside needs to get a license. And there's a list of all the people who need licenses from hot walkers to grooms to exercise riders to trainers. One uh, group that's not mentioned in there is media members. So it was a patently illegal thing to do based on the CHRB's own rules, which basically means that the CHRB well, I shouldn't say the CHRB, the two people who concocted this preposterous notion can't read because if you can read, you would know that based on their own rules, this was a non-starter. It got a lot of pushback, as you know, over 48 hours, and then they rescinded it. But it was a, it was a completely unforced error. And as we were just talking earlier, this has been such a wonderful, fun, upbeat Delmar meet. It was like, what are you doing? injecting something this stupid into a meat that's gone so well, like for no reason. I mean, if, there, if there's a problem that needs to be dealt with, yes, deal with it. But this was, a, a, they went and created a problem that didn't exist. I may now be asking you to engage in idle and potentially dangerous speculation. So be, feel free to punt this question <laughs> right back in my face. But what do you think they were worried about here? 
I, I couldn't begin to, to answer that. I mean, you'd have to ask them. The, the stated reason, again, the, the, was that there was a rule that had been on the books that wasn't being enforced. Well, that was patently false based on their own rules. They also said that there had apparently been a recent incident with uh, a, an exor- someone who had an exercise rider license who's now working in a media capacity and had applied to get an exercise rider license, even though they haven't been an exercise rider for a number of years. Now, I don't know if that story is true or not, but let's just for argument's sake, say that it is. Deal with that issue. Say that, look, if you're going to be an exercise rider, you can have an exercise rider's license. And if not, you can't. But you can also apply to get a media credential through the racetrack, which is what's been the policy for as long as I've done this. And I've done this a few years now. Um, <laughs> so if, if that indeed was the reason for this wider attempt at licensing media members, it was just making a mountain out of a molehill. It, it, there were so many steps along the way where this could have been dealt with in a, in a more rational and unembarrassing manner for an, a body that has had a lot of embarrassment over the last few years. And here was something that they just brought upon themselves and there was no need for it. And to underline again the difference between accreditation, which is completely the norm for media members, and licensing, it has to do with those second order effects of the idea that a reporter could get reprimanded or whatever if you say something that the the entity you're doing the reporting on doesn't like. That's not how journalism works. That is that can't be how journalism works. Now, look, I don't sit here as a journalist. I've said it many times much more of a marketing guy for horse racing. Obviously, all these people are clients. They're why we do all the shows that we do. It's a very different situation than what Jay, a proper journalist, is trying to do out there, which is really report the news and and the idea that you could be reprimanded in some way by the very organization you're covering. I mean, it's just antithetical to anything that makes sense and, and kind of the death of the ability to have any objective reporting at all in a sport that doesn't have all that much of it to begin with. Am I summing that up pretty well? Yeah. I mean, if you just looked at, for instance, at the First Amendment, which is, it's obviously a pretty important one because it's the first one. The, the first line of it says Congress shall make no law, you know, abridging press freedom. And this was not Congress, but you know, someone trying basically to abridge press freedom. It was it, it, it wouldn't have even lasted thirty seconds in a in a court. Um, how anybody at the horse racing board thought that this was something that could that was a good idea, let alone would stand up to scrutiny, eludes me. Fortunately, it has been kicked to the curb, and uh, but I did want to just sum it up a little bit, and I really wanted to get down the. Because, again, I think there were some well-meaning people that didn't understand the big deal, the difference between accreditation and and licensing. So I really wanted to get that yeah, point. Yeah, I, I uh, think people don't, don't realize that we have identification needed to get into the backside already. And I, I think that was an aspect of this that maybe people didn't fully understand. And they thought, well, well, why wouldn't they have a license? How else would you know who's going back there? But we already know who's going back there. It's just... It's an objectionable notion to think that the board should be licensing people to go there. And it didn't matter that they wanted to charge $75. I I wouldn't care if there was no charge for it. It's just it's not an appropriate or legal thing to do. And uh, fortunately, it was quashed quickly. But again, 
uh, causing embarrassment to a group that doesn't need any more embarrassment because they cause enough on their own on a fairly regular basis anyway. But this was this was mind boggling to me. That's a whole other podcast, Jay. We're not going to do that now. We're not, right. <laughs> I'm not going to ask the follow up that I'm supposed to ask to that question because we'll save it for another time. But and, and I'm just going to point out that it was quashed rather quickly in no small um, way because of work that you and Tom Law and others did getting the word out there about what was going on. So uh, excellent job speaking up for, for yourself and, and your profession. And we got to have you back on here soon. It's always a joy talking racing, talking industry issues. Really appreciate your time today, Jake. No, I always enjoy doing this stuff with you, Pete. I appreciate you having me on. Next up on the show, a guest we always love having on. We had him on at the beginning of the Woodbine Meet He'll tell us about what we're expecting to see this week up at Woodbine, culminating with the Queen's Plate on Sunday. Maybe we'll talk to him about his own racing and breeding operation as well. He's the CEO of Woodbine Entertainment, as well as a champion uh, breeder. He's Jim Lawson. Jim, how are things? Things are great, Peter. I'm excited to be on again and uh, certainly excited about Queen's Plate Week here. Before we get to what's coming up, let's talk about what's been since the last time we talked I've had the pleasure of playing a lot of Woodbine, covering Woodbine, of course, on Sky Sports Racing in the UK as well for the international audience. But from your perspective as CEO, how's the meet gone so far? It's gone well. It was a little disappointing at the beginning. Uh, I, I, I can't say it was pandemic related. I think uh, horse supply across North America is down a bit, Peter. I think we all recognize and acknowledge that. And and at Woodbine, I, I felt like uh, we had the horses on the grounds, but they just were not ready. And uh, we certainly, as we moved uh, into June and later July, uh, now the, the field sizes have definitely picked up. And uh, when our turf course opened uh, in June, that uh, that seemed to make a difference too. I mean, the, the wagering is how we measure our success, of course. And and that's all about field sizes. And once the field sizes picked up, our wagering picked up. So it's uh, it's been successful. And now we are entering a very exciting time this week and, and uh, in September. Um, so uh, it, it'll be a good year uh, overall in the end because our wagering is going to continue to be good. What have the vibes been about the August Queen's Plate? Obviously, the pandemic has messed schedules up traditionally. This was uh, something that would happen late June early early July what's been the the feeling among the racing community up there about the about the August plate this year I think that um, my sense is generally they like it certainly it's given uh, horses an opportunity to be ready which was the original premise when uh, when we looked at it again this year should we move it back to the traditional date or at the end of June or leave it in August and the feeling was it's better for the horses if they have a little more time to get ready to go that mile and a quarter and and so we went with it. I, I, I think we're going to do, from a business standpoint, I know we're going to do well wagering uh, on Sunday. And uh, we have more horses. And, and uh, so I, I think it's a plus-plus all the way around. And uh, I do believe our horse people are happy. And, uh, and of course, our wagering customer, they just like a big field of, of good horses. And we'll deliver that, whether it's uh, uh, this coming weekend. So. It makes sense to me. And as far as a social event goes, what are we expecting? I mean, do we think we're going to see the kind of crowds and, and vibe from not just the racing community, but sort of the, the, the social 
uh, element that has always marked the, the Queen's plates that I've been to anyway. Will, will there be the same kind of buzz, do we think? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the buzz will be back. Uh, we, we had uh, certainly a, a down year in 2020, a little bit better last year. Uh, but we're back this year. They, our dining rooms are sold out. Uh, there's uh, just a just a buzz around it. Uh, we've got a great uh, Canadian country music duo called the Reclaws who are performing, and uh, our people do a great job with the food and beverage, not only in the dining rooms but throughout the site. And uh, it'll be a fun day and, and a big buzz. And, and and you can sense it for sure this year. Uh, people uh, coming out of this pandemic are just happy to get out of the house and uh, they'll be coming to to Woodbine on Sunday. Excellent. Good to hear. Tickets still available for those in the area or planning to maybe make the trip up. It's, it's not as easy as I as I thought it might be to make the trek from uh, from Saratoga Springs to Woodbine. I was I was looking at it. and I think work may eventually get in the way. But but for those looking to turn up, there are still some options. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we are. um it, we're unlimited in terms of our general admission tickets. To we, uh, it's such a, a big property and a big space that uh, uh, it's it's more difficult right now to get dining room tickets. There's, I think, there are still some grandstand tickets, uh, but overall, people are not going to have a problem getting in. We we can we can host thirty or forty thousand people and and without without an issue and and we're a long ways from that but uh, our dining rooms are sold out as far as I know and uh, but uh, people should be able to have have no problem coming excellent we'll keep our fingers crossed for the for the weather obviously um, I'm not gonna hold your feet to the fire for a selection or anything this far out we're recording this on Tuesday, but I will ask you as somebody I know who uh, likes to, to read the form and keeps across all the big storylines, is there is there one horse or one storyline in particular that you're looking forward to to following this weekend for the Queen's Plate? Well, yes, Peter, you, you can't help but be excited, interested uh, once again in, 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 the, in the Philly taking on the boys. I mean, the, this has been a race that uh, has had uh, a number of Phillies uh, Win the win the Queen's Plate. Um, there have been nine of them since 1956. I think Moira uh, will go into the race as the favorite. She looked outstanding in the Canadian Oaks uh, in late July, and uh, she's she's the horse to beat. And uh, she sure looked good doing it, as I said. And uh, that's the storyline. Um, she looks to be overall the 38th filly to win the Queen's Plate, and. Uh, She's she's the one to beat. So that's going to be the big story of of the weekend, I'm sure. She'll attract a lot of attention pre-race and possibly post-race. <laughs> that was such an exciting performance back in the Woodbine Oaks and that form has been frank since with the second place finisher coming back to win nicely last uh, last Sunday. So yeah, that uh, that that's the that would have been my answer to that the, to that question too. And a little bit of a pop culture tie-in with being uh, named after the Catherine O'Hara character on on Schitt's Creek. Maybe that'll uh, get a little bit more attention in the local in the local press as well. I know Toronto is a city where there still is some racing coverage that exists, which is good to see. Oh yeah, absolutely. There we're we'll have uh, a lot of press there uh, outside of the racing coverage press and and Moira will bring that attention. Catherine O'Hare, by the way, uh, she was interested in coming and then uh, 
just with COVID, I think she's doing a new movie down in Atlanta, and, and she was concerned that uh, she didn't want to get sidetracked. So, uh, but she's certainly aware and uh, and, and was uh, was invited and expressed her her uh, sincere regrets about uh, not coming on uh, Sunday. Legendary comedian, so glad to see her getting this, uh, getting all this extra attention. Talking of uh, cross country travel obviously quite doable for the Queen's Plate, probably even easier to do in a month's time for the big Woodbine Mile Day. That's when I'm hoping to make my triumphant return to uh, north of the border. What are we looking forward to this year for Woodbine Mile weekend? And are we expecting a big uh, international crowd maybe to turn up? Yeah, I I I believe we will. I, I'm expecting the, the regular Godolphin invasion and uh, which is great. It, it's so wonderful to see <laughs> the the European horses show up. As you know, they're so well turned out. I don't know what they do to make them look so good, but uh, uh, they, they certainly and they run well often. But uh, the the mile uh, will be a, will be a great field. I know it's 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 really turned itself into the stepping stone uh, to the to the Breeders' Cup mile and uh, the the preeminent prep race for that. And of course. We've increased the uh, purses for the two-year-old races uh, that weekend. Uh, the Natalma and the Summer Stakes, they're both grade ones to $500,000 each. And, and they, too, have become a, a real stepping stone to the Breeders' Cup. Uh, they're all win-in-your-in races, of course. And um, so we're going to have great fields uh, that weekend for sure. And I hope you come, Peter. It'll be a great, just a spectacular weekend of racing. September 17th and 18th, if I'm remembering that correctly, for those two big days. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Make the track. They'll let you across the border. <laughs> we got to get my act together for that. It'd be fun. It's an easy, it's an easy get from, uh, from, from New York City. That much, that much is for sure. While I have you on here, Jim, I want to get a little bit of an update about what's going on in your stable. We just have a couple minutes left. I, I know we could go on longer than that, but love to hear about how your the, the new crop of two-year-olds is coming along and anything else you're excited about. Yeah, listen, I, when I think of racing and, and for this year, uh, we've had Mrs. Barbara, who was the champion two-year-old filly in Canada last year. Um, she's ran well this year up, up until her, her last race, the Colleen, it was all I can suggest is throw the race out and, and uh, give her an excuse. She did not run well. The Rafi Hernandez said she didn't take up the bit and he's ridden her in, in, in her all but two of her lifetime starts. And, uh, I'm hoping she'll bounce back. It was 40 degree, uh, humidity, 40 Celsius. So a hundred degrees. Uh, humidity with the humidity that day. And I think Mrs. Barber being a smart filly said, what are you doing to me? I'm not running today. And <laughs> I hope she's, she's come back out of the race. She's, uh, she's training well and bouncing around and, and I, I, I hope she'll bounce back. We'll, we'll have to find a, a next spot for her, but I, I think she'll bounce back. She's got a little, uh, half brother by ransom the moon called one for chap. He, he broke his maiden in a second start in a maiden special weight. Uh, he, too, is trained by Mark Cassie. Uh, he had a little setback uh, a week ago, and so we were aiming towards the Soaring Free, which is this weekend also on Saturday. Uh, not also the Soaring Free and the Catch a Glimpse, the 
two two-year-old filly races, which are effectively the prep for the Natalma and the summer stakes uh, on on mile weekend. Um, so I think we may go directly into the summer stakes with one for Chap. And then uh, got another nice two-year-old at Citatard's training. Um, he's a congrats, great big uh, two-year-old colt. Um, really excited about him. He's uh, he's training exceptionally well. And uh, I, his name is Hank Ollie, but uh, it, it's fun. We, I've got five two-year-olds this year, and uh, and uh, two of them, um, one for Chap and Hank Ollie, uh, look like uh, there's some real promise there. So it's uh, it's always fun with the two-year-olds. You never know, but when they when they step out on and, and start breezing and and uh, they show that little extra, it uh, it gives you some hope, Peter. So you never know till they uh, till they open the gates in the afternoon. But uh, I've got a couple of them that I'm pretty excited about. Couple ones for the horse to watch list for the tracker, as it were. Great stuff, Jim. We wish you a great week up there. We're going to be covering it wall to wall pretty much here on the In the Money Media Network and looking forward to our own Matt Bernier being part of the TV coverage. We'll have him yapping about stuff as well. We're excited about having Matt and and Peter. Thanks so much to you and and your team for giving uh, Woodbine Racetrack uh, the coverage that you do. And and, uh, you've got an extensive coverage of of Queen's Plate Week and we're really appreciative and we look forward to working with you this week. And uh, it will be an exciting time. And while we may not see you personally this weekend, uh, just book that uh, book that trip for Woodbine Mile weekend and uh, we'll we'll deliver some great racing for you that weekend also. So uh, all the best and uh, enjoy the week. And, and, and thanks again for everything. Cheers, my friend. Thank you. Take care. Last but not least on this edition of the show, very happy to bring in a man who often is the co-host of this program today. We're demoting him just to a guest, folks, but uh, I don't think it's going to bother his ego because he's an extremely popular figure up here in Saratoga, as evidenced by uh, any time you attempt to go out to dinner with him. I am speaking of a man, while he hails from the planet Texas, is currently having his digs here in Saratoga Springs. He is, of course, Jonathan Kinchin. What's up, JK? PTF, what is the word? I am uh, I am here. I am making it. Uh, last week was, was painful. I... I lied to, to a friend of ours, um, and I said, I said, man, I'm sorry. I've just been so busy this week. And then I texted right after, and I said, that's not true. We're friends. I have not been busy. I have either been drunk or hungover, and I'm very sorry about it. <laughs> I thought you were going to be talking about the wagering, not the, not no, the boozing. the sale. The sale, because Monday and Tuesday is normally when, when you're in Saratoga is when it's like rest and recovery day, you know? Yes. Monday, Tuesday, rest and recovery, and then you know you take it easy on Wednesday, Thursday, and then you you hit it, you know, hit the ground running on Friday and Saturday night with people in town, and you're going to dinners and there's wine and cocktails, all these things. But when the, when you don't have the when the sale keeps you out later than you're normally out on those Monday, that Monday and Tuesday, you're playing from behind the whole rest of the week. Totally true. I, I experienced very very similar, and this year I behaved. Last year I was out half the night. Um, for the sales, and it really put me at a deficit. But even just getting home at you know one a.m. It, w- it was bad enough. You need those recovery days up here if you're going to make the, the the forty days and forty nights at Saratoga. Speaking of wagering, though, how's yours been going? I've been trucking along, and then took a swing at that pick six carryover, didn't work out, and then absolutely got my teeth kicked in with some bad betting on on Saturday, and now 
with 16 days left in the meet. I'm, I'm playing from a, a little bit behind. Not going to wave the white flag just yet, though. How about you? How's your betting been going? Nah, she's getting snapped with, like, silly horses that, like, you know, run the race again, I'm not going to have them, right? Like, the most recent one would be Sunday. I was alive pretty good with a really well – I loved the ticket the way that I played it. Um, and I got beat by Brazilian Air, which it's funny because – if everyone will remember or pause the show and look at the charts, Brazilian Air ran here, I think, opening weekend of the weekend, second weekend. And Brazilian Air was in a non-winners of three sprint where he looked dead loose in there. He was one to two, didn't make the lead, and was tooth and nail to win non-winners of three coming from off the pace. And I remember – on the show, I was with Richie that day, and we kept talking about how this horse just doesn't want to pass horses. It doesn't want to pass horses. So in the last the other day, I had the three horses I thought could win. I was alive, you know, to – you know how it is. You're not alive to change your life, but you're alive to make the boogeyman go away from the last couple of weeks. or the You know what I mean? And, and he gets a perfect ride from Javier and passes a horse that I liked in the race. And it was just so frustrating. Like, I can't believe this horse who was tooth and nail at one to two when he looked dead loose and a non-winners of three just won a starter allowance against a horse that outworked a stake horse for Todd Pletcher. And it was just – so it's like, those, it's like those types of beats. You know what I mean? Not a whole lot of mistakes, just a whole lot of Saratoga, like, will get you in ways that, you know, you won't always expect. It's hard. A lot of well-meant, uh, a lot of well-meant horses coming from different places. And – I think you and I both like to look at things mostly through the lens of form. And, and sometimes up here, the angles can supersede the form because there are just so many live horses. And I will say another example of, uh, of great work from Castellano. I don't know if you saw, but uh, David Aragona posted a table of jockey stats this meet. And it was one of those funny things where the stats really back up just the impression I've had watching anyway, that names like Castellano and, and Rosario are really the ones you want to be with big ROIs with for, from both of those riders. And it's to the point where it's very rare that I will upgrade based on jockey alone. I will typically do that with Rosario first time on a closer or something like that. But the, the Castellano success is something I'm really paying attention to. And I have to say for me is one of the surprises of the meet. No, he, he look, he's been, he's been riding extremely well. And, and if, you know, I think you and I both have kind of kind of followed Castellano's career because, you know, he, he was with, I don't, I'm going to forget who his previous agent, he was with someone before John Payne got. And so Javier, Lake out. Lake out. So he was kind of tailing off then. And then when he got with Johnny, obviously with Johnny being our friend, I, I was kind of rooting for him, paying attention a little bit more than he had, you know, with Johnny, he had the Vacoma success. Um, and, and a couple of other, you know, you know, he's riding for Chad. He was blah, 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 blah. And then when he left Johnny, I kind of stopped paying attention as much to, to, to him. And, but I did kind of notice that he was kind of on a downward skid and now he's really coming back and to be this competitive and to have this many wins and to be doing it with horses, which the ROI points to horses that he's not supposed to be doing it with. It's a, it's a resurgence in his hall of fame career that, that, uh, that he should be proud of. And, And that's, and that's good. Look, this is a tough game and these guys risk their lives every day. So as much as I like to, poke and pick on them privately i don't do it too often on the show but if it's private you know i might make fun of a ride or something i just don't i just don't think it i don't think it looks good or reflects well if i blame uh, something my failures and publicly on them I, it just doesn't i don't 
It just, I don't. Bad luck. Brandon, yeah, it just, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting there with ice packs on my legs, drinking cold water with an AC blowing on me and getting paid to talk about racing. And they're out there risking their lives, hungry as hell. It just doesn't make sense for me to like poke at them for making a mistake. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see Javier doing well. And, and this is a tough colony to be having that success, especially with all the young guns running around. You know, you got, you got Manny who's, who's won more races for Chad Brown this year than, than Irad or Flavian. You got Flavian, you got Irad, you got Jose, you got Louie, uh, you know, and for, and you got Johnny and you, and you know, and for, and for Javier to have that success, it's, it's been cool to watch. I don't want to give away the store on the excellent tweet that David put out. You should surely be following him at, at horse to watch, but yeah, the, the, the $2 ROI for Castellano at this meet three thirty one, crazy. And then also in the black, you've got Joel, as I mentioned, Jose Lascano and also Flavian Pratt. Saez, um, been doing extremely well too. The ROI actually lower than I would have guessed at, at 177. Anyway, check out the whole chart. It's really, it's really cool. And I know that, you know, jockey looking, making picks through the lens of jockey is something that you or I rarely, rarely do. And I'm not saying I'm going to start now, but I just think it's interesting to see these kind of stats. How do you, what, what purpose do, does a stat like that serve for you just as a horse player? Um, you know, I tried it. I, you know, we talked about this in the show before we talked about it in general. I have tried to get away from stats. And the reason I've tried to get away from stats is I'm going to try to explain this the best way possible. I feel like it cancels out and equals where a bad stat on a horse or a jockey will get me off of a horse that will beat me the equal amount of times that a, that a good stat will get me onto a horse I wasn't going to use. So if I just always ignore the stats, then I'm in, I'm, I'm in the same position, 50-50. You know what I mean? I'd rather just look at the horse, the individual, and the situation and try not to let that in, impact my decision-making. Like I would hate for on Wednesday for me to be deciding between uh, the four and the seven horse and who I'm going to use as A's or who I'm going to toss or single or whatever. And I go, ooh, <laughs> Javier's on the four. <laughs> Positive ROI for him for the meet. And then I, and then he gets, gets, I get a bad trip and he, you know, I get carried out wide and I get beat. And, and I, the seven beats me and it's got Eric Cancel on it. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? I just feel like if you, if you, if you're going to be a stat guy, then you got to live and die by the stat guy. But I'm never going to be a full stat guy. So I kind of have to be a never stat guy. I love to see it from a fan. I love to see it from a overall picture situation, but it's not going to impact my decision making. I think that's reasonable. I mean, I I think I would be a little more inclined in that same situation, for example, if also the Castellano horse was a bigger price, like to just be just a little bit more inclined to to throw in, but way down the pecking order in terms of uh, in terms of signal factors for me. Mostly, I just think they're interesting, and I think it helps tell the story of a meet. And obviously as podcasters, we have to do that, but just as racing fans, it's kind of fun to do that anyway. So, I mean, I think it was great work that David did on that table and I just wanted to highlight it. Let's talk about some specifics of racing. Uh, We'll go with here at Saratoga. I have four races down on the list here. If we have time, maybe we'll talk quickly about Arlington as well, but let's start with the four star Dave win and you're in action for the Breeders' Cup mile. And an old friend who I didn't like on Saturday, I didn't think the race would be run to suit Casa Creed, who ended up quickening up like a good thing and scoring a 103. 
buyer speed figure. Um, it was an impressive turn of foot that this horse showed. What did you think of the four-star Dave going in, and what do you think coming out? Well, I have a pretty simple opinion. I actually saw you when we were at dinner the other night. I ran into Lee Einsidler, and we were talking about it. And, and, and it's it's funny, you know, trying to tell give Lee an, an honest spin of the situation. He, he just he's not taking it at all. He, he loves that horse so much, and I and and I understand why. He's a super cool horse to win back to back Grade Ones, um, and and the Jiper and to run that you know the Jiper win last time was off of like a you know no one talks about the Dubai ship and the Saudi ship. He came back and won that race, and then he. Then he shows up and he wins this race. I, I have a very simple opinion about this race. Um, I thought the pace was slow for those quality of horses. And when they turned for home, the race was a sprint to the wire. And when the race became a sprint to the wire, who was going to win the race? The sprinter. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. I think Casa Creed is a phenomenal sprinter. Phenomenal sprinter. I think he is a very very good miler and the situation just fell into his hands it is my belief that if mason or or uh the the storming horse if they were to go 45 and 4 that it would have become a stamina test that that casa creed would have got sucked along a little faster than he wanted and he wouldn't have had that devastating late kick the, the, and then the other other simple thing that I have about the, the equation is that the people that think that Jose gave Regal Glory a bad ride, Chad has told me personally that Regal Glory hates being on the inside, hates it. And Chad would know. He, tra- he trains horses inside, outside, inside, outside. He said she hates being on the inside. So I'm assuming it was instructions. Jose, just keep her in the clear. And right. she just got out. They all came home fast. She just got out kicked by a sprinter, a, a grade one winning sprinter, who's arguably the best sprinter in the country. So when it comes to looking ahead to a race like the Breeders' Cup Mile, are, is Regal Glory one that you might look to keep on your radar yep. in the right time? Yes, 100%. Keep on my radar. Costa Creed, if he runs in that race, keep on my radar. I will treat those two horses. I, I, look, Costa Creed got the trophy, but that's kind of the extent of it for me. I'm not crowning him the Breeders' Cup best miler. I, it's just we'll start over when we see. Like I think they're going to run Costa Creed. Um Lee said they're going to probably run Costa Creed in the Keeneland Mile. I don't know what the name of it is anymore, but the, the turf, the Grade One Mile race they have, the the one that Teppin won before she won the Keeneland Breeders' Cup Mile. I think it's the Shadwell Mile. Still, I think I, I know, wrong. but I think the sponsorship changed. I don't know if it's Shadwell okay. anymore. I think it might because Shadwell didn't they didn't they disperse? I don't know. I'm not going to whatever. I think it's just they, the Keeneland Mile. You're right. Yeah. Okay. The Keeneland um, Mile. I and know. So he'll he'll run there and and he'll have another opportunity to 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 influence my opinion of him going forward to the mile. I, but you know, he's not, he's not an auto toss. He's not an auto single for me. He's a damn good horse. that ran a good race. You mentioned conversations we had the other night at dinner. That makes me think of chocolate gelato, who I just couldn't bet off the, the, the debut. I decided that that was kind of a no finish, no real excuse trip for a horse. We'd heard fastest horse in the world chat her about before, uh, before the debut. But it turns out that, uh, the hype that we heard for race one was justified in race two for Chocolate Gelato. Why did you keep the faith and what did you think of the effort? Well, it makes me really sad. Austin bet two horses this entire meet. No, three horses. He bet three horses this entire meet. He bet Idea Generation was the no contest horse for Chad because right. Chad had told him at bowling the horse was really good. Then he bet Chocolate Gelato and lost. And then he bet Prank, the, the Philly for Todd that aired. Those are the three bets he made all year long. 
all summer as the three red. He should have gone undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, he missed he missed chocolate gelato. Um, I know they love chocolate gelato. Um, I knew they loved chocolate gelato. It's what you know, you hear about these these things all the time up here, these fastest horse in the world things. And then it happens. They show up sometimes and they run to that. You know, I think a lot of times you got to try to take in all the information you can and then make everything make sense. We keep talking about how deep this racetrack is, how slow the racetrack is, how taxing the racetrack is. So to me, it's entirely feasible that Chocolate Gelato, who showed a ton of talent, was pegged as one of Todd's best two-year-olds. He led him over there, or her over there, him over there, him over there, right? Uh, Chocolate Gelato I'm on it. is a Philly. Yeah, led her over there. Right, thinking that she was the most talented two-year-old he, that he had, but he got she got on that deep racetrack, and she broke a little whatever, and she was tired, and and she got tired. She still ran like a you know seventy-something figure. She ran fine, and then she came back and she worked really well. So then I figured, okay, now the real chocolate gelato is going to show up because she's going to be fit, and now they learned something about her. He's in the Hall of Famer for a reason. Adjust this, adjust that, bit this, I rad this, I rad that, break here, don't do this, don't do that. And so I just assumed that we were going to get the real performance out of her and we did. I'm so used to his babies showing up fully formed that I couldn't quite make that leap. But it's an interesting point about the racetrack that maybe we can use, JK, over the last three weeks of the meet. Do you think having that race over the deep, tiring surface is going to maybe move horses up more than average for most trainers going forward? I mean, she went from a 70-something buyer to a 90-something buyer. So to me, that is a, that's the, the best way to explain that is from a fitness standpoint. You know, so I think I think 100 percent there's 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 something there, um, a game that we can play. You think there's a chance she might be good enough to trouble her stablemate who you mentioned before, one of Austin's other bets? I don't know know if she wants to do all of that, but, um, (laughs) you know, prank is prank is, uh, you know, from a figure standpoint, they're not too far off. But I would imagine they'll be I, I would imagine you'll find ways to try to keep them separated, you know, um. Prank, I would imagine, will run in the um, uh, in the uh, what's the what's the great one at the end of the mirror at the in the meet, not the hopeful, but the spin away. Spin away. She run in the spin away, I would guess. And then a horse like the, like Chocolate Gelato that just ran, you know, she'll get five weeks or whatever it is into the frisette. You know, hey, there'd be an appointment at the end of the year. They n- neither one could miss, assuming they're on. Song. Of course, like they'll get their to me, they'll get their next. I, what I guess my point is is that I don't have to say which one's better yet because I don't think they'll race each other next. I think that they'll both have another performance that we can fall in love with or hate that will lead us into the Breeders' Cup. Hey, what was your excuse? You said Austin should have been undefeated in his three bets, one of which was on idea generation. Do, do, do you think – I mean, or do you just mean that that should have should have always just been a no contest and, and no, he would have hit no, the other? No, that, that was probably a beating either way. She, she, didn't, she didn't run to, to, to the potential I think she's meant to run at. Um, but, but when she shows back up, I'll, I'll treat her like the freak I think she is, and, and I'll blame the first one on fitness. There you go. Let's do some just rapid fire because there's a few other things we have to talk about. Big invasion, so impressive in the Mahoney. Is this horse a serious contender for the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint? Yeah, if 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 I know that the Ascot thing wasn't Golden Powell's fault, but Golden Powell has kind of shown himself to be a one-trick pony. Um, 
he, you know, he broke a little slow last time and was, was all out to, to beat a horse that would be 27 to one in the Breeders' Cup turf sprint, right? So I, I'm not knocking Golden Powell. I think he's the best sprinter in the country. But if this horse, Big Invasion, continues to improve, we got to remember he's only a three-year-old Big Invasion. Um, and if he continues to improve, uh, you know, man, he makes his own trip. He, he overcomes all kinds of situations. Um, you know, I just think the race becomes a lot more interesting with a horse like Big Invasion involved. And it stinks that Casa Creed won't be in there because, man, then Golden Powell would have two monsters running him down late. Um, he's, he's, he's definitely a part of the conversation, though. Yeah, and we don't know that for sure about uh, about Casa Creed, depending on what happens in the in the next start. Boy, that that sounds like it could be pretty interesting. But you know, we like to play buy sell hold around here when it comes to the Breeders' Cup races. And right now, for the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint, maybe we'll put a vote out on this. Big Invasion ten to one. That's a buy, as far as I'm concerned. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yes, because he's gonna improve. He's gonna yeah, he's meant to improve. And Christoph is speaking the right way. He said, we kind of got started early with the, this horse in his post-race interview with Maggie. I believe he said, we're going to probably give him a little bit of a break. Probably give him a little bit of a break. Allow him to kind of grow up a little bit. Let his body settle. Let his bones develop. Let him just eat and be a horse for a little while and then kind of pick up the, the training again. He's going to be even better. I, I, I think he's a very interesting prospect at 10 to 1. Three more very quick ones, and we'll start with the Saratoga Special and Damon's Mound. Michelle Lovell, trainer, I know you've been tracking for the last uh, several years, getting some nice Saratoga success and uh, uh, kicking um, Gulfport, who's the horse that I had landed on in the spot, uh, in the shins along the way. How impressed were you with Damon's Mound? Pretty impressed. You know, I mean, if you looked at Damon Mount, Damon's Mound's debut, the figure came back fast after missing the break and did it pretty easily. There was, an, there was a world in which that that horse could take a step forward if Gulfport took a step back. And that's exactly what happened. I think that horse took a little bit of a step forward. Gulfport, for whatever reason, took a little bit of a step back. I'm not ready to give up on Gulfport, though. I mean, I'm not, it's not like I need to, like, you know, I don't think he's like a fraud or anything. I think he's a talented racehorse that just, you know, just kind of didn't have his day that day. Um, and, I, you know, I'd like to to think that he'll come back and continue to run well. But but Damon's mound was impressive. I, I thought that horse ran really well. It has a right, Quick if I'm run. not mistaken, from a pedigree standpoint, has a right to want to go further, right? Um, um, stroll on the damn side, Gervin on the sire side. So I think it's a little bit remains to be seen. Or were you talking Gulfport? Well, I tell you one thing. There's been a bunch of Gervin winners. Um, at the Timonium sale, is a Gervin that sold for like $900,000. I think Gervin Gervin is off to a very very hot start. Yeah, definitely one that we've started to pay attention to. Um, but yeah, that breeding on on Damon's Mound, I think it's very much of a very much of an open question. And then when you're looking at Gulfport's pedigree, maybe that was the one you meant for going longer because there's Uncle Mo out of an unbridled song there. If I'm if I'm getting that uh, getting that pedigree correct, so interesting breeding on both of those and and a, and a race that I think the form could end up looking pretty good. Really rapid fire because I know you got to go. But uh, the 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 quote unquote Arlington races, uh, Delica, a horse I know you've long been a fan of, getting it done in the win and you're in Beverly D Stakes. I was not uh, smart enough to back her on the day, but uh, undeniably a very cool horse. Yeah, it's fun. I'm, I, uh, it's fun because when I had Tom Amos and, and Al Stahl for Cart Talk, you know, Al kind of said about Delica is they kept her in training this year to try to get that Grade One for her. Because then there's some, you know, as a broodmare prospect, she's very interesting because 
she's German bred, right? So you get all of that stamina from Germany. Um, uh, Germany, if I'm not mistaken, and if I am, you know, sorry. They, I don't think you can use Lasix. So correct. There's right. that. There's that. That pedig. That pedigree. That blood. Those bloodlines are very interesting for some of the new rules that we see here now. But the other great thing about Delika is that she won an allowance race going five and a half. She won a stake, if I'm not mistaken, going eleven furlongs, and then she won a grade one going nine. Like that's a pretty cool, diverse pedigree. That you know, you hook her up with some some uh really cool turf stallion you know and and i mean what like a mendelssohn or or you know who's got all of this speed and all this precocity and you 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 mix all that together she seems like she'd be a very interesting prospect for a broodmare and and getting this grade one really helps that too cool horse no doubt about it pastorius the sire uh, is a German bred. Uh, she is a German bred, as JK said, but the dam's actually Irish blood drawn to run uh, by Hurricane Run. So, I mean, uh, you know, you get an arc winner in there too. <laughs> Incredible pedigree. Really, really cool broodmare prospect. I think that's safe to say. Uh, my guy Santine did a little bit better this time around without all that, uh, all, all the, the the trouble from from the last day. The thing that really surprised me about this race was how much the clock loved it, JK. Santine has a 106 buyer speed figure suggesting he could be a very very serious horse moving forward what did you think of him well i want to say this that i think you know remember covid when she dares the devil ran the fastest kentucky oaks ever second fastest it's because they ran it in a time they don't ever run it so i I think that the clock situation is a little bit tricky because, and I'm sure it was a very hard speed figure to make because there hasn't, there's, it's the summer. So the, so the Churchill Downs turf course is obviously different than it normally is. It's not the fall. It's not the spring. And there wasn't any other races really to compare it to. They, 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 you know, they they raced on like different parts of the track and you know, the head, they put the, 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 uh, the rail out. And so, you know, I'm not going to get overly, excited or underwhelmed or either way about the speed figure it's it was a very unique situation that churchill found themselves in you know i'm glad they were ever to, to able to pull it off the best they could um santine likes that goofy turf course though i can tell you that much like he, he you know <laughs> he ran he ran really well on derby day being wide on the right part of the track and then he comes right back and does it again in the million um and he didn't run as well in the manhattan in between at belmont so um he, he is going the right direction good horse but I haven't seen anything yet that is going to have me cutting in line to bet on him in the Breeders' Cup turf. Probably Breeders' Cup mile, I would guess, or the, for or him. The mile. Or the on, mile. On, yeah, based on the body of work. You mentioned the Manhattan real quick. Just two quick notes on that, and then we're done. I uh, remember he had the shoe repairs, what it was it, that day, and, and I don't know that it uh, – I, I don't know. I mean, we need a we need a farrier to tell us uh, how difficult that is to do on the fly before a race. It, it may have been the ten furlongs that told on him there, as opposed to the shoe repair. But I was very much willing to put a line through that race. But the Manhattan, which was so weird because it was kind of that false race in a way. I hate to say that, but kind of that false race in a way with the other speed not breaking and Trebuvin doing his thing on the front end. But I think that's the fourth winner to come out of it. Um, very live looking race, and and one I'll be giving horses a little bit of extra credit coming out of or at least treating that as as live uh, live form going forward jk we appreciate your time today and uh, we will have you on uh, again soon surely for uh, travers week we'll, we'll be doing something fun with you uh, appreciate it brother have a great day see you soon
That's going to do it for this edition of the show. I'd like to thank today's guests very much, J.K., Jim Lawson, Jay Privman. Always fun to talk to each of those individuals, as it is to so many of the guests here on the In the Money Media Network. We'll thank our founding partners, including the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. Got the exciting news today that they are sold out for the barbecue at the barn. Thanks to all of you who participated. If you want to help the cause, though, there are many other ways. Lots of events still going on over at the TRF website, as well as a chance to just give directly. Uh, They're also going to be part of our live uh, final answer show for the Travers next Thursday. That'll be fun. To get more details, trfinc.org slash players. Also, 10 Strike Racing. Going to get to see a bunch of 10 Strike partners, including uh, Clay Sanders, who's rolling into town on Thursday for Alabama weekend. Looking forward to hanging out with him. Thanks, though, most of all to all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. Hope you'll continue the fun joining us for Horse Player Happy Hour on Thursdays. You can sign up for the game over at horseplayers.com as soon as it goes live and then join us for the live stream Thursday at 4 p.m. Looking to put together some special guests for this week and it should be a lot of fun. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May you win all your photos.